<laughs> I, I get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable when these build-ups are that big, because now you're really expecting something amazing. Um, but I'm glad that you just really invited me for the British accent, because that means the pressure is off me for preaching. Uh, my name's Matt. Uh, I am currently pastoring at Epicenter Church here in Pasadena. I've been there uh, just over a year. Uh, we're a church that just meets up uh, in Pasadena on Allen at uh, Marshall High School. We're about 75% Asian American, uh, committed to missions around the world and discipleship, and I get the privilege of uh, serving the, the congregation there. And uh, I'm looking out and just impressed at how many new faces there are. Um, I've been around Vintage and uh, a friend of Ben and the teams here for a couple of years since you guys started. In fact, I met Ben and Laura for the first time when they were checking out Pasadena for the first time before they even started the church plant. And um, I don't know if you know this, if you're in a church that follows the lectionary, which thankfully you guys don't, usually in the middle of summer, there's some really hard passages come up in the lectionary, and that's when the pastor goes on vacation and gets a guest speaker in. <laughs> so this morning I get to talk to you about persecution. Seriously. Uh, but we bless Ben. Um, I, uh, I, I do encourage you, if this is your first time here, do come back next week, because uh, I am the visiting speaker. And even if you love me, you need to come back and uh, hear Ben. And if you don't love me, um, then you need to come back and hear Ben. But thank you for the welcome. Um, the last time I was in this building was 10 years ago. Uh, as I graduated from Fuller Seminary and um, I walked in here this morning and it's like, I've forgotten how big this place is. So uh, I'm going to try not to look up into the distance at the beautiful stained window, but uh, look at your beautiful faces instead. Uh, I need to pray, mostly for my benefit, so would you join me just for a moment? Father, as we turn to your word now, I ask that you would give us the gift of Holy Spirit who breathed out this word and who inspired this word, that you would enliven it to our own hearts and lives, that you would speak to each one here what you have to say to them. And whether that is through my words or in spite of my words, we say, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? We submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus and to the authority of your word. And we pray that our hearts would be good soil to receive this seed in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the other things that Carla didn't mention is uh, I, I'm an author, which just means that I've written a book. And um, I have uh, a couple of copies here, which I'd like to give away. The, the book is called The Gifts of God, um, Discovering the Heart of a Giver. And it's really, an, an, it's, a, it's both an introduction and a revisit of the spiritual gifts that we find and understanding uh, that actually the spiritual gifts reveal the heart of God himself, who is the giver. 
Um, it's my best-selling book. which means I have a book and I've sold a couple of copies. So it's the best-selling book that I've written. Uh, but I would like to give a couple of copies away. Does anybody have a birthday this week? S- somebody's pointing somewhere else. Kirby, happy birthday. <clears throat> and then uh, I would also like to give a book away to, if anyone, uh, is anyone kind of like, grow- oh, hang on, there's another arm pointing. What does that mean? Is that, there another birthday? All right. Could you, let's run this up. I hope I don't do any problems with the sound. There we go. Two birthdays. Happy birthday. It's, uh, it's available on all good Amazon.com websites. Uh, so you can find it there. I'm going to start by reading our text for today. And I know you've been going through a series on the Beatitudes. And uh, I am going to be just preaching on one verse, but I would like to read uh, just from the beginning of the Beatitudes, if that's okay, and I'll explain why as we get going. I'm going to have to make sure that this fan, which is lovely for the breeze, doesn't keep blowing my notes away. So we'll see how that works. Hang on. A DIY post-it note here. Stick that down there. All right. See how that works. Hopefully the text is going to come up on your screen. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And our verse for today. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word to us. Have you seen the new Top Gun movie? Put your hand up if you have seen it. All right. Um, Who's not seen the original Top Gun movie? Just a handful of you. So if you've never seen the original, I'm not going to give any spoilers, don't worry if you haven't seen either of them, but if you've never seen the original Top Gun movie, then go see the new one, and it's a great movie. Great characters, great plot line, great action sequences, good soundtrack. Uh, it's, It's just a great movie. But if you have seen the first movie, it brings a whole new depth to the second movie of all these like references and homages and throwbacks to the original storyline. And when we went to see it just a few weeks ago, I found myself watching this new movie and every now and again there'd be a line or a sequence or a shot or a reference that would, in my mind, would throw me back to the first movie. 
And I would, in my mind, I was sitting in a movie theater reliving my experience of watching the first movie, you know, whatever the emotion was, whether it was joy or sadness or, or excitement or whatever. Matthew, when he writes his gospel, is writing to a bunch of people who've heard the first act of a story. They already know a story about something when they read this story in Matthew's gospel. They know a story about a guy called Moses in the history of their people, Israel, who went up a mountain one day to hear from God and received uh, instruction, teaching from God and then shared it with the people. The Hebrew word for teaching is a word Torah. It just means teaching. It's what we call the first five books or the first five scrolls of the Old Testament, the Torah. And so when Matthew starts this, uh, this little section of teaching, he's doing a couple of things. Firstly, uh, you would know this if you have one of those Bibles where the words of Jesus are in a different color. If you flick through Matthew's gospel or if you scroll through Matthew's gospel, you'll see that there's five big blocks in a different color because there's five sections of teaching in Matthew's gospel. And this is the first one. It's the first big block of red letters. And when we, when we read this, we're meant to be understanding it and trying to make sense of it in light of a story that's gone before. And with all these stories, they're not exactly the same, but we're meant to remember it when we read this one. In the Beatitudes, Jesus speaks about the way that a new kingdom works. Just like Moses was called up a mountain to lead people uh, away from slavery into the freedom of a new land where they were no longer ruled by a pharaoh, but they were going to be ruled by God. Jesus is talking about what it looks like to live in a new kingdom where God is the king. And as you've been hearing over the last few weeks, this kingdom looks different to the kingdoms of this earth. It looks different to the way that Roman Palestine was being ruled. It looks different to how Britain looks. It looks different even to how the United States of America looks. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, there's a kingdom that you're invited into. And you may have heard previous speakers say something like this. It's an upside down kingdom. It, it doesn't com- conform to the way that we think the world works. In, instead, it conforms to the way that God thinks it should work. And we get invited into it. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
I don't know about you, but this beatitude, for me, raises some questions. When you read all the other beatitudes, as you've been doing over this series, I kind of, on the whole, I kind of hear them and I feel like, hey, how do I get in on that blessing? It's kind of like my kind of first response is like, oh, there's a whole load of people who are blessed and favored by God. How, how do I get in on that? And then I read this one. And my honest initial response was like, yeah, I don't know that I want this blessing. This is not one of the ones that I'm really excited about. Maybe I should just skip over this bit and read the next fun bit. I need to get to the good bit. The reality is we can't skip over this verse. That's why Ben got the guest preacher in. This verse is good news to us. But it's, a ch- it's challenging. Uh, at least it challenges me. Maybe I'm the only person in the room that it's challenging for, but it challenges me. And I think we need the Spirit's help to hear what God might have to say to us as we sit here on the west coast of the United States enjoying freedom of speech and the freedom to practice our religion. What might this verse possibly have to say to us? Let me describe what persecution is. Some of you may be familiar with the word. Some of you may hear it in certain contexts. Some of you may be, it's not really a word that you've given any thought to. So I went to dictionary.com, the home of all, all words meaning. And it says persecution can be defined as a campaign, so something intentional and sustained, to exterminate, drive away, or subjugate persons or people based on their membership in a religious, ethnic, or social, or racial group. So pretty tough stuff to hear. The reality is for the majority of people here, because I don't know all of your stories, I don't, know every, I don't know how all of you have arrived here, but the majority of us sitting here have never been subject to persecution. So what in the world does this verse have to say to us? Persecution is something we read about in history. We read about the persecuted Christians of old who paid the ultimate price by their faithful witness. Those who lost their lives we call martyrs, which just comes from a Greek word, uh, martyr or martyros, which just means witness. They were faithful witnesses. Martyrs like Stephen in the book of Acts, who lost his life when he was stoned to death under the watchful eye of Saul, the persecutor in Acts 7. If you're an early church history buff, maybe you've heard of a guy called Polycarp. Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna, who was burned at the stake in 155 AD because he refused to burn incense at the Roman pagan temple. Jump forward several 
hundred years. Maybe you've heard of a guy from the Protestant Reformation called William Tyndale. He was a scholar in the Protestant Reformation and he was the first person to translate the Bible into English. And he was killed in 1536 for being a perceived threat to the Catholic Church's authority because he believed people should be able to read the scriptures in their own language for themselves. Or maybe jumping forward to the last century, maybe you've heard of a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor. He was executed by the Nazis for taking a stand against their regime and he was accused of being involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Now the ironic thing about this is that Stephen and William Tyndale were both persecuted and executed by those in religious authority in the name of God. Whereas Polycarp and Bonhoeffer were both executed by the powers and empires of their day because they took a stand against the empire. Which immediately makes me ask the question when we read this verse, who's doing the persecuting? Is the church guilty of persecuting people? Or is it only the church that's subject to persecution? So I can see that, you know, everybody's shoulders are sagging a little bit. It's like, oh man, this is a heavy one today. It gets better, I promise you. Eventually, bear with me. Does persecution even happen today? I'm going to put a couple of slides up if we can. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, in the decade from 2000 to 2010, more than one million Christians were martyred for their faith. They were killed for their faith. In other words, every hour during that decade, 11 believers died because they uh, claimed the name of Jesus. We're not talking about Christians who die of natural causes or in accidents. We're talking about Christians who died specifically because of their decision to stand for Christ in name or deed. Can you put the next slide up, please? Currently around the world, 312 million Christians face significant persecution or opposition because of their choice to follow Jesus. 312 million. Honestly, most of us, that's a number we can't really get our head around. It's happening around the world today but mostly it's happening in the global south. It's especially ha happening in Africa. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
In 2008, uh, I got to go on a missions trip. It was uh, the first missions trip I'd been on since I was at university a very long time ago. And uh, I went with an international team to India and we sent teams all the way out really to do a training conference for Christian leaders and pastors in the different part. And I ended up in Meghalaya State, which is up in northeast uh, India. And uh, the uh, kind of quite a hilly area, a little bit cooler than other parts of uh, India. Actually, quite a quite a Christianized uh, place. We had a lot of uh, leaders and pastors attend that training and the conference that we were doing there. But we met five Christian brothers who had travelled for five days from Bangladesh, which is just to the Uh, south of um, that area of India. They were from a Muslim background. They'd heard the gospel. They responded to Jesus to make him their Lord and Savior. And they submitted their lives to him and their lives by their own testimony were transformed. But it cost them. Their families... um, uh, rebuked them and uh, exiled them. They said they disowned them. They no longer wanted to uh, associate with them. The elders in their town in Bangladesh banned them from the community. They were no longer welcome to come back. They had already experienced um, being beaten and insulted and spat at. And they were told that if they came back, they would be killed. And as we listened to their story and met them, they said to our team, they said, uh, would, you, would you pray for us? And, we, and would you teach us what we should do in the face of this persecution? These five Bangladeshi brothers who traveled for days to get to this conference asked two Canadians, an American and an Englishman, can you teach us what we should do in the face of persecution? And we sat there in silence for a while because we didn't know, because we'd never faced what they'd faced. Honestly, it was, it was a humbling moment to sit with people who are suffering because they've chosen to follow Jesus. We prayed for them humbly. We asked the Holy Spirit to be their teacher and their guide, just as Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. They were hungry for more of the Spirit. But then we asked them, we said, would you pray for us that we would have the courage that you have? Because actually we need what you've got. It was a really humbling moment when you're supposed to be ministering to the masses and all of a sudden you realize, like, I haven't got what you've got. Would you pray for us? We knew that in that moment we were in the presence of believers who were going to receive the promise of this beatitude. So let me ask this question. So are we meant to seek persecution? Is there some kind of spiritual value to be found in being persecuted? And I have to say, I think the answer is a categorical no. 
the writer of the Psalms cries out on multiple occasions for God to save him from his persecutors. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. At first I thought that was good. And then I realized that Jesus said, when you're persecuted, not if. It seems that Jesus fully expects at some point, in some way, at some time, that his followers will face persecution and opposition. This is one of those sobering moments when we're invited to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Nobody in their right mind wants to be persecuted, but we're confronted by this truth that Jesus told his disciples that they would face persecution. It's not a surprise to Jesus. It shouldn't be a surprise to us, no matter how much the law of the land might protect our right to practice our religion. And though we don't ask for persecution, Jesus does speak about receiving a reward for enduring it. Are you familiar with the parable of the sower who went to throw seed on the different soils and some of it fell on the path and some of it fell on rocky ground and some of it fell on good soil and we could burst into a kid's song about it. In that one, he talks about a sower who threw seed liberally on rocky ground and what he then explains to his disciples later is the seed that falls on stony ground receives it enthusiastically at first, but it doesn't take root. And so Jesus explains that when persecution and trouble comes, it withers up and dies. How's the soil of our heart? Do we have good soil where the roots of God's word can go down deep or are our hearts stony ground that we get enthusiastic about the cool blessings that come when you follow Jesus, but we're less enthusiastic about allowing his roots to go deep in the face of opposition and persecution and trouble. Do you remember the apostle Peter? The one who Jesus said, Peter, Petros, you're the rock on which I'll build this church. He displayed, Peter the rock displayed that his heart was stony ground on the eve of Jesus' trial when confronted by guards and even a a young girl who thought he had a funny accent, a bit like Jesus, denied knowing him. He looked after himself and colluded with the persecution of Jesus. And of course, God is wonderfully merciful And we read about Peter's restoration. And in fact, not only was he restored, but he was given a great responsibility to become the shepherd of the church. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. But even Peter the rock demonstrated in that moment, his heart was stony ground. How would we fare if we've been in that situation? I don't know. Maybe you could put up the pictures of, of Peter. These are two paintings by Caravaggio. 
The one on the left is Peter denying Jesus to the guard and the young girl. But Peter ultimately would die a martyr's death for standing up for the name of Jesus. In fact, as this uh, painting alludes to, history says it that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to think that he deserved to be uh, crucified in the same manner as Jesus. He went from uh, a denier to a martyr. He went from uh, somebody who looked after his own safety to somebody who faced persecution. He went from stony soil to good soil. So I say that today, that if you've ever found yourself and you're even carrying shame or embarrassment, that there's been situations where you've denied Jesus. Jesus can restore you. He can till the soil of our hearts through his mercy and kindness. So the promise of this beatitude speaks powerfully. Those who find themselves facing persecution, there is a blessing in divine favor that comes from God. There's an inheritance, a reward for what they have undergone. I admit, as someone who has not faced persecution, I find this promise difficult to understand. I find it difficult to get my head around it. I don't stand here this morning at the front like I'm an expert on this and instead I'm just revealing the fact that I'm humbled by this. But isn't there so much about the upside down kingdom that confounds us and perplexes us (laughs) that we just have to call out on the mercy and grace of God? So what should we do? What does this verse have to say to us? I was privileged um, a few years ago to be in a ministry context where one of my uh, 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 companions in ministry was a a man uh, from an Asian country where he had been imprisoned for his faith uh, several times. Uh, He had been beaten um, and tortured Uh, whilst in prison and his body bore the marks of his beatings still and uh, he now lives in the west but is passionate about returning to his country of origin to preach the gospel and to train up and to disciple leaders in the uh, church in that nation. It was very humbling to work with him but also very, very inspiring. So what do we have to learn from this verse? Well, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In the New Living Translation, if we can throw the next one up, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right. This is where I wanna camp out just for the remainder of my time this morning. I think for the majority of us who have not faced and do not face persecution, I think this is the piece of this verse that really challenges us and speaks to us this morning. Will we be those who instead of pursuing persecution or pursuing our own safety and well-being, will we pursue righteousness? Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right. We tend to think today that righteousness is just about my moral correctness. 
the, the problem with that is we quickly spiral into self-righteousness. If I do the right things, somehow I get the righteousness that I need. I earn the righteousness that I need. And we quickly fall into works righteousness, trying to earn our salvation in Christ. But in Hebrew thought, the idea of righteousness, the idea of being in right relationship is what righteousness means. It's a relational word. Is, is one side of a coin of which the other side is the word justice. If you look in the Old Testament, righteousness and justice are paired together again and again and again. In fact, Psalm uh, 89 says righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. What does a king do on a throne? He rules, he reigns. How do we experience when God is ruling and reigning? When his kingdom comes. His kingdom is the place and the experience of God's rule and reign. In the Old Testament, I can't consider myself righteous in right relationship if, if I let my neighbor continue to suffer injustice. And conversely, I can't deal justly with my neighbor unless I'm willing to be in right relationship with them. The two cannot be separated. I don't know if you uh, follow the Bible Project uh, on YouTube or podcasts. I love listening to their podcasts. Um, But Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says this, in the Old Testament, righteousness is the standard of right, equitable relationships between us. You get that? Righteousness is the standard of right, equitable relationships between us. It's a relational word. And justice means the actions that you take to create that standard and do it. Justice is the actions that you take to create the standard of right relationships and do it. What does that mean for us then? Well, Jesus summarized it this way. Love God and love your neighbor, both of which are foundational and from the Torah, the Old Testament teaching. He said, the whole of the law and the prophets rests on this. In other words, to pursue righteousness, to live for the sake of righteousness is to do justice by God's eyes, living out right relationship with those around us. By pursuing righteousness and justice, we actually begin to see God's kingdom being manifested around us. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness and justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's my retranslation. The scriptures are unequivocal. God's justice looks like caring for the vulnerable and the marginalized and speaking out against systems that oppress them. Righteousness looks like making restitution for losses incurred by our actions. It looks like speaking truth to power when power has corrupted leaders. It's what the Old Testament prophets did. They spoke out against Israel's own injustices as well as speaking out against the oppressors amongst their pagan neighbors. That's why in the very next verse in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, just 
like the prophets of old face persecution. Why? Because they dare to put their head above the pulpit and call things out that were unjust. We may not be the ones who are experiencing persecution, but this verse has plenty to say to us today about our call to stand up for righteousness and justice. Is it possible that in our relative peace and comfort we collude with injustice? Or where we are recipients of privilege at the expense of injustice for others? The blessing of God lives, comes to those who live for righteousness, not on those who live for their own peace or live not to cause offence. I'm going to, for the sake of time, um, uh, I'm going to skip the, the other little video, but I had a little video of uh, Shane Claiborne, who's a Christian author and activist. He tells a story about uh, a, uh, an unjust um, uh, uh, law in his city in uh, Philadelphia that meant that you can't feed people on the streets. And they had a ministry to the homeless and they felt this was unjust. So they went ahead and fed the homeless. They did it anyway, and uh, they were arrested for doing it, and when they went to court, um, they invited one of their homeless brothers to represent the whole group, and the homeless brother stood up before the judge and said, Your Honor, um, we're here because we think this law is evil and wrong, and sat down. That was the defense. And the judge listened to them and decided, well, the question here is not whether or not you broke a law, because it's blatantly obvious that you did break a law. The question we should ask is whether or not these laws are righteous and just. And he said, uh, we feel like you've exposed an unjust law, and so I find you all not guilty. And because they took a stand for righteousness, because they took a stand for justice, unjust laws were changed. They got arrested in the process. There was a cost to them. And Shane Claiborne says this in the clip. I think the invitation to us is to live with imagination. That prophetic imagination that says, I'm going to try and see the world with new eyes. I'm going to try and notice people that other people don't notice. I'm going to live in ways that don't compute with the patterns of this world the upside down kingdom of Jesus that calls us to live in ways that don't compute with the patterns of this world. I want to invite Tom and the worship team when you're uh, ready, you can come back up. I want to throw up a final thought. I, I decided some, it might be helpful to read this beatitude as an antithesis. What would be the opposite of this beatitude? So I came up with this. Blessed are the comfortable conformers, for they shall be irrelevant and go unnoticed, and that will be the full extent of their reward, said no one ever. And actually, as I sat with that, I felt very convicted. I felt convicted about how often I choose comfort over discomfort, how I don't want to be the one that sticks their head up against, uh, over the parapet. 
But Jesus offers comfort to those who find themselves facing persecution today. Perhaps some of you here in your journey, perhaps you know what that feels like. I don't want to discount that just because we're sitting in Pasadena. Maybe some of you do know what it's like to be persecuted and opposed because you've stood up for the name of Jesus. If that's the case, God wants to be present with you because his favor is with you. Receive his blessing today, knowing that the kingdom of heaven is yours. For those of us, I suspect the majority of us who do not and have not experienced persecution for our faith, the challenge of this beatitude to us is will we pursue doing righteousness and justice in the name of Jesus? Will God's word find good soil in our hearts which will take root? Or are our hearts stony ground? Following Jesus comes with a health warning in case you'd never heard it. Let me tell it to you now. It will probably make you unpopular at some point in your life. And maybe even with the people whose opinions matter to you the most. And Jesus would say, come follow me. Following Jesus requires each of us to lay down our old ways of doing things. To stop ruling ourselves and trying to control everything around us and to find his life in this upside down kingdom. It'll cost you everything, but you'll find new life when you lay yours down. Will you allow God to sit in the throne of your life this morning? Will you allow him to give you a heart for the, um, the weak and the vulnerable today? I know you guys are doing some great work in, here in Pasadena uh, with the homeless and um, some other initiatives doing missions trips to, to Mexico, medical missions. I think that's a glimpse of what it looks like to pursue this kind of righteousness and justice. Perhaps some of you uh, know people close to your everyday walking around life that others don't see and who go unnoticed. May God give you the eyes to see them and the heart of compassion to minister to them. Are we courageous enough to ask God to break our hearts for the things that break his heart? Will we fear God more than we fear man?